Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Called to account, tech CEOs Mark Zuckerberg and Evan Spiegel appear in Washington, D.C. and apologize to parents whose children died after facing harm online. One father who was in that hearing room tells us he was not impressed. Best kept secrets. In Ottawa, an inquiry into foreign interference considers how to share confidential information. The former head of CSIS warns that doing so will mean navigating a culture that is not comfortable opening up. Changing the approach instead of the subject after five current and former NHL players are charged with sexual assault, an investigative reporter tells us the tide may be turning, but she will never forget the stories of the girls and women who never got justice. Going public with private grief. Quebec politician Desiree McGraw knows what it is to lose a child at various stages of pregnancy. She tells us it's time that addressing perinatal loss becomes a matter of policy. Let's make Adele a deal. She's one of the world's biggest pop stars, certainly, but promoters in Munich figured out a simple way to attract Adele for some concerts. Simply build her a custom-made stadium that seats 80,000. Easy enough. (laughs) And smells like tween spirit. A Missouri man who found a time capsule hidden inside his house tells us the 12-year-old who put it there did a decent job of capturing 1994 in a coffee can. As it happens, the Wednesday edition, radio that suggests if you find yourself talking constantly about the past, just can it. Big tech leaders went to Washington today to be grilled by politicians over their failure to protect children. And they also had to confront the parents of children who died after facing harm online. Dozens of mothers and fathers sat in the hearing room while senators called the tech executives to account. One moment was particularly dramatic. Here's Republican Senator Josh Hawley questioning Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg. There's families of victims here today. Have you apologized to the victims? Would you like to do so now? Well, they're here. You're on national television. Would you like now to apologize to the victims who have been harmed by your product? Show them the pictures. Would you like to apologize for what you've done to these good people? And this is why we invested so much and are going to continue doing industry leading efforts to, uh, to make sure that no one has to go through the types of things that your families have had to suffer. Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg standing up, turning, and speaking directly to parents at a hearing today on Capitol Hill. Sam Chapman was there. His 16-year-old son, Sammy, died three years ago after buying a fentanyl-laced pill on Snapchat. We reached Mr. Chapman in Washington, D.C. Sam, how did you react to those words in the moment? I hope he doesn't apologize to his wife like that. I mean, that was not an apology. And uh, he, I believe, bragged in the middle about them doing everything they can. How did the other parents around you react in the moment? We all feel like they are terrible people. And apologies don't matter. All that matters is the number of deaths start going down. And the sex exploitation starts going down. In the meantime, it gets worse and worse every year. And it really doesn't matter what they say. What could they have said today, do you think, or that you would have wanted to hear that would have set your mind and your heart at ease a bit more? Well, we're pushing for Sammy's law, named after my son, which would provide for third-party safety software on any platform with children. So they could have said, we'll open an API for third-party safety software, and parents could be back parenting again. 
In that clip, we heard the senator say, show him the pictures. He was referring to something that happened before the testimony, uh, before uh, the hearing officially began. Just describe for our listeners what happened with you and the other parents. Well, what you couldn't see was at the beginning of the hearing, the senator started coming out, and I put Sammy's picture up. And then my friend Jaime put his son Daniel's picture up. And then Amy Neville put her son Alexander's picture up. And then everyone put their pictures up. And we held them up there for 20 minutes while the senators filed in and then while the CEOs filed in. And they saw a room full of about 75 parents standing with uh, pictures of our children who we lost. And it was an amazing moment. So when Josh Hawley asked again for us to show the pictures, the rest of the room had already seen them and lived with them. And even the sergeant of arms came to us and told us that the chairman wanted us not to do that anymore. Why? I don't know. They they want decorum. And I thought we had excellent decorum. No one shouted or, or yelled BS or anything that was in our hearts. Uh, we sat there quietly. We just raised our pictures a little bit and... I guess they'd had enough. We spoke about your son, Sammy, uh, earlier on this program uh, in October. He was just 16 when he died. It was Super Bowl Sunday in 2021, and it was from a tainted pill he he bought on Snapchat. California Senator Democrat LaFonza Butler questioned the CEO of Snapchat and asked him what they were doing, if they were doing anything. What did you feel about what you heard in, in that response? Well, I thought that Snapchat CEO Evan Spiegel got off easy. He pretended when Senator Butler asked him that, that they had everything under control. And that's his usual party line, and it's just not true. And Sammy is living, or not living proof. And um, one thing that was amazing was Senator Butler asked to meet us on the break. And then when she spoke, she called out my name and my son's name during the hearing. And that meant a lot to me. Oh, Sam. She pushed him a, a few times uh, in speaking about the experience your your family had uh, because Spiegel talked about, as, as Zuckerberg did, the, the things that they feel they are doing to help and raise awareness. Uh, he did say he was sorry that, that this had happened to families like yours. I'm paraphrasing. That's not a direct quote. But do you feel that you're closer to meaningful change now? Yes, but not because of the hearing. It's because of our lawsuit. Our lawsuit survived a motion to dismiss, and then uh, last week survived a motion to strike 30 of our paragraphs from our allegations. And the judge said no to both of those. So those are two big wins. And we are going to trial on 12 allegations against SNAP, Inc., So you got to watch this case, because Mm -hmm. if we break through, and we are breaking through, there will be hundreds of thousands of cases. And these people will clean up their act. We're doing a product liability suit. It's a faulty product and a failure to warn. And there will be many more to follow. And that's my biggest hope for change. Why do you think that your case, legal case, might achieve more than the kinds of things we heard today and the kind of public display we saw today? They've been shielded thus far, the social media companies, from Section 230C of the Communications Decency Act and by the First Amendment. So you literally couldn't sue them successfully. And because we took a product liability approach, it doesn't have anything to do with free speech. It has to do with the algorithms and the design of the product and how it's driving drug dealers to our children and not for what the drug dealers say. There's also an argument to be made that's been made by 31 attorney generals against Meta that we're also making Mm -hmm. that they intentionally addicted the children to the platform and that they're liable for any harm that comes from that. This case uh, and getting change is clearly a focus for you and the other parents. I wonder, having the support from the other families, is that bringing you solace right now as well? It's bringing me results. We are a force. We act together. 
75 of us showed up with eight and a half by 11 pictures wearing black ribbons and full black attire today. And that's because we spoke to each other and we planned and we all came. And the chairman said he'd never seen the committee room this full. Sam, I appreciate your time again. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for covering it. Sam Chapman is the father of Sammy Chapman. He's in Washington, D.C. As you heard, he's also a plaintiff in a lawsuit against Snap Incorporated, the parent company of Snapchat. The company says it doesn't comment on pending litigation, but it does say it cooperates with law enforcement investigations, including by preserving and disclosing data in response to valid legal requests. And in emergency situations with an imminent threat to life, their 24-7 team usually responds in 30 minutes. It's a striking image and one that many people never thought they'd see. The faces of five former and current NHL players side by side with a headline announcing charges of sexual assault. As you've probably heard, Michael McLeod, Dylan Dubay, Carter Hart, Cal Foote, and Alex Formanton have been named as the former junior players who are facing charges of sexual assault. The assault is alleged to have happened in London, Ontario in 2018 during a Hockey Canada celebration for the team's World Junior Ice Hockey Championship. In a previous lawsuit, a young woman said she was sexually assaulted by eight players in a hotel room. The men deny any criminal wrongdoing. Laura Robinson is an investigative reporter who wrote the 1998 book Crossing the Line, Violence and Sexual Assault in Canada's National Sport. In a warning, there will be a discussion of sexual assault, including gang sexual assault, in this conversation. Laura, you have likely heard this kind of story, this kind of case, so many times over the decades since you wrote your book. What was it like from your standpoint and your experience to see this story making these headlines and see those photographs of the players? Well, it was somewhat gratifying because uh, you're right, I have covered these issues in junior hockey to do with gang sexual assault since 1992, actually, is when I started investigating. While it is important that this particular case be recognized and that we see that, you know, charges have... have, um, been laid and eventually there will be a a hearing on this. I also at the same time think about all the girls and young women who I covered, knowing that most of them left their town, left their province, some of them even left Canada because the treatment that they received because they lived in a hockey town and the uh, players, the junior players were so protected by powerful people forced them to leave their own homes. In this case, lawyers for all the players, we should say, have denied criminal wrongdoing, saying they will vigorously defend themselves in, in court. But they are, you know, they, many of them are NHL players currently. The state's back to the juniors in 2018, as we've said before. But the fact that it's higher profile because they are there are NHL players among the accused might that change things in your view? I really do think that we are at a crossroads right now in Canada and that this case can make a huge difference to hockey culture. And I think Hockey Canada realizes that. I, I happen to I happen to agree with some of the important steps that Hockey Canada has made. Unfortunately, it's deeply embedded. It's it's been there for decades and decades. After my book came out in 1998, uh, two men told me about very serious incidences that happened in different parts of Canada in the 1950s. Um, so we know that it's a culture that is very strong and very protected. And much as I believe Hockey Canada wants to do something, we really do have to look at things at the grassroots level 
at the rink. How do we change a culture at the rink? So really, I think so young, so boys and young men don't understand masculinity as being performed through really violent and um, sexually degrading ways, which unfortunately has happened in so many hockey towns across Canada. You wrote in your book that that young men in, in the hockey world are treated as objects, and that leads to them objectifying women. Yes, it's a very it's a, it's a very insidious way that they are objectified. First of all, by the time you're 14 in that world of junior hockey, you can already be owned and you can be bought and sold eventually when you're old enough to play junior hockey. So what does it do to a young male to already be a commodity by the time he's 14? And then really I think that one of the most disturbing parts of the junior hockey culture is the initiations that so many of the players go through, which apparently are there for team bonding. However, it often happens that the players themselves become sex abuse victims uh, through these disgusting, violent, sexually degrading initiations that so many of the teams have had. Not surprisingly then, for a 16-year-old, if that's his first uh, experience, sexual experience, and it's violent, it's degrading, it's in a group, in those cases, they also generally videotaped it, then not surprisingly, that gets reenacted in his own sexual life. So it's a it's a vicious circle. Do you think it's still happening now? I hope it's not happening now. Uh, I know that there's a, a huge amount of junior hockey players who have come forward about initiations mm-hmm. that happened in the past. I really think that we are seeing a big change. I think that the Professional Women's Hockey League will be a big part of this change. Not Not because I believe that if women play professional hockey, we won't have a rape culture, but because it changes how women are understood by young men. And until young men understand young women as human beings, basically, not as a a piece of uh, ice, basically, where they perform for the other men on the team, that would be replicated. So the female, the role of females in hockey is changing. And, and I think we're at, as I said earlier, a crossroads. I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic. Laura, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for inviting me. Laura Robinson is an investigative reporter who wrote the 1998 book, Crossing the Line, Violence and Sexual Assault in Canada's National Sport. is 1994. Nelson Mandela becomes president of South Africa. The Channel Tunnel opens between England and France. O.J. Simpson flees police in a white Ford Bronco. At the movies, Pulp Fiction and Forrest Gump are huge hits. And in Springfield, Missouri, 12-year-old Nathan Hedden fills a coffee can with treasured belongings and timely items, stuffs a note inside, and hides the can under his house. That last 1994 event is probably news to you. It was definitely news to Stephen Graff, who now lives in Nathan's former house with his family, who found his time capsule last week while doing some construction work. We reached Mr. Graff at home in Springfield. Stephen, what were you looking for when you came across this this old coffee tin? Well, we were actually, it was my son-in-law that was underneath the house. He, he works with my brother-in-law for uh, the construction company. And we've had a we had a low spot in our floor from when the house was redone about two years ago. So they were looking at the fix for that, and Andrew happened to come out from under the house with a can. <laughs> and what did you think before you guys cracked it open? What were your guesses? 
Well, he had uh, he had already kind of peeked inside, and he said, it looks like some little kid stuff in this, but I'm not sure what it is. And that's when I unfolded the letter and uh, found out that it was, in fact, a time capsule <laughs> that a little 12-year-old boy had put under the house at one point. It's it's so lovely to hear you talk about it. I'm trying to imagine that moment, you know, as you unfold the piece of paper. It, it must have felt strange but special. Well, it did. It was uh, the can. Uh, I kind of gingerly took everything out of the can because it was, it was actually in good shape for a coffee can that had been underneath the house for 30 years. Yeah. But I, uh, when I unfolded the letter and started reading through that is when I... Uh, when I really thought it was kind of special, just because of his uh, the way he described himself and his family and what he had put in the time capsule. I know you've sent everything off now to to the person who put it together, to Nathan. But but tell us a little bit of what was in that letter. He described himself. He said he had a brother Zach that was ten years old and uh, they had a promising future. And then he described himself as a uh, 12-year-old with the intellect of a 30-year-old, but the spelling of a (laughs) 7-year-old, which I got a chuckle out of. That's my favorite line, too. And intellect, we should note, uh, was misspelled. (laughs) That's correct. That's correct. But, uh, and then he was very, uh, you know, uh, I'm a a registered nurse, and he said that his mother was a nurse and was an angel in disguise and that his uh, father was a carpenter. Oh, so An angel was misspelled, too. That's right. But, <laughs> but the thought and the heart were there. Uh, I'm looking at a picture of, of the contents. Uh, I see the letter. It's, it's yellow, you know, notebook paper with a red margin. Uh, but uh-huh. tell us about the trinkets and, and memorabilia in there. What, what did that 12-year-old think was important to include? Well, it was funny. He had uh, he had a couple of action figures that I didn't recognize offhand, and then uh, three or four football cards of some different players, and then also uh, one one of the things that got a lot of comments online were the pogs. He had a there was a couple of pogs in there, and I remembered those from when my girls were smaller and had collected those. Uh, what is a pog? Then, uh, well, a pog, it, they're kind of like the little collectible kind of bottle cap type yeah. things that the kids would play with and stuff. Uh, and then he also had uh, one of the things that really tickled me was the he had uh, to show what they were eating. He had cut the wrapper <laughs> off a package of little Smokies. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah, Oscar Mayer, little Smokies. I mean, he was really thoughtful about it. Oh, he was. Yeah, he wanted to. He wanted everybody to make sure exactly uh Kind of what what kind of things they were they were doing back then? He's clever. <laughs> He's clever. So then you decide to to put it out there uh, on social media to try to find Nathan uh-huh. Hedden, right? Yes, I I was really amazed by that. I I just thought it'd be fun to uh, take some pictures of it and set it out there. You know, I did that. I guess after the lunch when I when I'd figured it out, and then uh, I. Uh, went back to work and then a couple hours later just happened to check back on threads and already a couple of people had looked at it and commented and i i had uh, two or three screenshots from nathan's uh, facebook profile that uh-huh. they'd sent me saying hey i think this is the guy <laughs> so how so, long did it take then, in all to find oh, him uh, no more than two hours wow and i uh, sent him a message on there just asking him if he'd happened to you know, live at this address in Springfield, Missouri, when he was 12 years old. And, uh, oh, within 30 minutes, he had responded back to me. He said, yeah, I did. And and uh, that I don't know that he really remembered it offhand that he had done that. But uh, yeah. he said he'd sure be interested to see what his 12-year-old self thought was important to put in a time capsule back then. And what did he, what did he think when, when you listed it all off to him before sending it to he, him? He said all these family got a really a big kick out of it to, to see those things and especially the letter the way he described all of them and stuff I think really really meant a lot to him so yeah what a, it is a treasure I mean it's it's so special to to remember that moment in time for yourself yeah I think it was I, I got uh, we mailed it out to him uh, last Friday and then I got a really nice message from him uh, Monday evening that he'd received everything intact and seemed like he was uh, really enjoying all the memories from it. What has all of this uh, taught you? 
you know, it's been just fun. I've, mm-hmm. I've really enjoyed the uh, all of the connections and all of the comments, especially. Uh, this is just the exact thing that we like to see on social media with all of the all of the negative things that seem to capture so much of the attention to see kind of a feel-good thing like this and a, and a good connection and, and getting back something to a, a boy 30 years later, uh, they, they thought was pretty special. Well, I'm glad you made, made the connection. Stephen, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. I enjoyed talking with you. Likewise. Stephen Graff lives in Springfield, Missouri. He recently discovered a time capsule under his house, hidden there by 12-year-old Nathan Hedden when he lived there 30 years ago. In 2008, Billboard magazine caught up with a 20-year-old singer whose first album had become a surprise international success. A surprise to everyone, including her. My album going to number one was the, the most amazing thing that has and ever will happen for your debut album to go to number one. It was incredible. And I'm, I'm really bad at kind of expressing how I feel. So I don't like gushing, but it is amazing. I don't think you'll ever kind of get used to something like that. It's quite unlikely that you're going to end up being a singer for your career. And the kind of artists I like, they're top ten, you know, they're Britney and they're Spice Girls and they're Backstreet Boys. And to think that I could possibly do what they do, not on such a big level, like, you know, like all the dance routines, but was ridiculous. I just used to sing because I liked it. Like, and I still do sing because I like it, but never thought it would kind of get me anywhere. That was Adele expressing her shock that she had joined the immortal likes of Britney, Spice Girls, and Backstreet Boys at the top of the charts. And by now she has eclipsed all of them, commercially and creatively, except for Backstreet Boys, of course, whose artistry remains unsurpassed. (laughs) Sixteen years later, she has sold more than 120 million albums internationally. She's won 12 Brit Awards, an Emmy, 16 Grammys, an Academy Award, and a Golden Globe. She is world famous. And yet in interviews, she's still refreshingly humble, forthright, and unaffected. She's the same as she's always been, except for the minor thing that now people construct entire stadiums to her specifications just so she'll show up and play four concerts. Today on Instagram, Adele announced that she will be doing four shows in Munich in August. She said she initially had no plans to do any concerts this summer, but then someone made her an offer. I was too curious to not follow up and indulge in this idea. A one-off bespoke pop-up stadium designed around whatever show I want to put on. Oh, unquote. So that is the special stage Adele is at, the stage where they build her her own special stage. I have no idea how you build a whole pop-up stadium that will hold 80,000 fans, by the way, but luckily that is not my problem. But I do have an answer to a musical question Adele asked on her last album. This song is called Can I Get It? And the answer, no matter what it is, seems to be yes. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Before an independent commission can uncover the truth about foreign election interference in Canada, it will have to determine how much of that truth it can reveal to Canadians. As the inquiry launched this week, the commission said it plans to push the federal government to disclose as much information as possible. But that is easier said than done. According to the commission's lawyers, 80% of the documents they've received so far are classified at the top secret level or higher. Today, several intelligence experts addressed the commission, offering their insight. Among them was Dick Fadden. He's the former director of CSIS and was a national security advisor to Prime Ministers Trudeau and Harper. We reached him in Ottawa. 
Dick, you've said in the past that you hope Commissioner Marie-José Og will be generous with what she releases to the public. Do you think she'll find it easy to do that? Well, I think she's going to try very, very hard. Uh, And since the Prime Minister and the Minister said they want to be as transparent as they can, I think she has a good chance of doing it. But when it comes down to every piece of information that she wants to release, uh, I think she'll find some of it will be very, very difficult, and some will probably be an uphill battle. But I think they'll make a special effort to make it possible. She doesn't have the authority to declassify things for the public, though. No, she absolutely does not. Uh, All of the information at issue is owned by the government, by ministers, and it will be up to them to respond to her requests for declassification. After all of this, do you think in the end listeners can expect to learn anything that they didn't learn from David Johnston's initial report? Yeah, I think so, because A, she said she was going to build on what uh, David Johnston said. She said she wasn't bound by his conclusions, Mm -hmm. but she would make use of them. She's able to, I think, benefit from a bit of a change of heart from the government, uh, who have accepted the need for a, a public inquiry. I think, though, there are some things that are going to have to remain secret. That's simply in the nature of what, you know, what we're talking about. But if she's able to convince the government to provide summaries of things, uh, if they're able to take her word that she's looked at the material and she's reporting things accurately, mm-hmm. I think in the end we will come up with a slightly better understanding, or at least a better understanding, than we had six months ago or a year ago. When you address the inquiry today, you described a culture within agencies such as CSIS that can sometimes default, as you put it, to, quote, overprotection. I think there's a certain degree of expectation that there's some secretiveness in these agencies, but you're saying it's going beyond that. What, what exactly did you mean? Well, I think, to begin with, these agencies have to operate in secret. So I think we have to accept that as a premise. You can't be an intelligence collection office and make everything public. But what I meant was is that over time your institution develops a broad approach. I did not think that it meant that they were you know, consciously trying to hide things mm-hmm. or not comply with the law. But, you know, everything is a balance between making things public and keeping secret things secret. And I think when there's a... Sometimes when you have the press of, you know, the press of business, a lot of volume, you tend to sort of, you know, defer to the, the easiest and sometimes the necessary requirement to to be protective. You also said today that you believe if CSIS knew about a credible threat, they would act upon it. Conservative MP Michael Chong, from his experience, he he may feel differently, but I wonder in the end what what you're hoping to learn from this inquiry in the end. uh, Well, what I said at the, the inquiry was that when I was there, if we ever learned of a threat against anybody, we'd find some way of dealing with it. You know, if I'd found out about a threat concerning a parliamentarian, we would have found a way, we would have told our minister. If it was a physical threat about against you or someone else, I would have found a way to tell the police. What would that way look like? Well, you know, I mean, if, if we had learned, if the agency had learned about a threat against a parliamentarian, if it was a, a, an inchoate general threat, I would have made sure that the, the minister involved would be made aware, and I would have made sure the Privy Council was made aware, and I would urge them to make sure the MP would be made aware. If it's a physical threat about against somebody, uh, either a parliamentarian or you or anybody else, you tell the police. And I think, I'd like to think that that was, would be what they would do today. It's certainly what we would have done in my day. But I think what I personally want, want to get out of this is a sense of how the, how the agencies, plural, not just CSIS, but CSE and the Privy Council and GAC, have moved forward, you know, since the time I was there, given, you know, the increasingly serious allegations of foreign interference. As you may have heard, a coalition of human rights groups are threatening to boycott the inquiry if politicians with alleged ties to Beijing are allowed to cross-examine them and to gain access to confidential evidence. Justice Ugg acknowledged the allegations but says the politicians have a, quote, reputational interest and need to be, quote, afforded the full range of participatory rights and protections, end quote. Do you agree with her decision? I'm not sure I have enough information to sort of come down clearly on one side or the other. In the end, I think there are two sets of rights here that have to be balanced. I find it hard to not be sympathetic with, you know, the counsel that you were referring to and the fears that they might have. And on the other hand, just because people are accused of things in this country, 
politicians or anybody else doesn't mean they're guilty. So I think we have an obligation on that side of things to give them an opportunity to to at least discuss things and ask questions. So I'm, as you will have gathered, trying to avoid answering your question directly <laughs> because I don't think... That never happens to me. It's, it's very rare. <laughs> You've never had that happen before. <laughs> but I will say, you, you, have, you have said in the past, you, you've pointed to what you see as a lack of officials here in this country taking foreign influence, foreign interference seriously enough from your perspective. Do mm-hmm. you sense a shift now? No, I think so. I think the first shift I saw from the government is in the Indo-Pacific strategy. They said for the first time that China was a strategic adversary. We're still not, I think, as concerned as, you know, our close allies, mm-hmm. but I think we're heading in the right direction. But I think the thing that I'm hoping for is that the, the, the commission will be able to make concrete recommendations to the government on steps that can be taken, probably not to eliminate foreign interference, because I don't think it's possible, but to make people more aware of it and to control it and to put it into a box as much as we can. Dick, thanks for your time. My pleasure. Thanks very much. Dick Fadden is the former head of CSIS and a former national security advisor to two prime ministers. We reached him in Ottawa. Late this afternoon, the group representing Uyghur Canadians at the inquiry did announce its decision to withdraw, citing in its words, strong, credible allegations against three politicians withstanding in the inquiry. Desiree McGraw has three living sons, but she's been pregnant a lot more than three times. And as hard as her experiences of perinatal loss have been, they're far from unusual. Ms. McGraw is a liberal member of the National Assembly of Quebec and the sponsor of a bill that is being adopted into law tomorrow. It's inspired by her own journey and by the countless stories she's heard from other families that have lived through infertility, miscarriage, ectopic pregnancies, stillbirth, and infant death. Those varied experiences have one thing in common, hardly anyone talks about them, which is why Ms. McGraw's bill includes the establishment of a new Quebec Perinatal Bereavement Awareness Day. We reached Desiree McGraw in Quebec City. Desiree, October 15th is is a while away, but, but when you look ahead on your calendar and in your mind's eye, how do you imagine marking that day? Well, hopefully uh, with the adoption of, of this of this law, it will be officially uh, Perinatal Awareness Day here in Quebec, and I will be doing what I would normally do, which is to go to the grave of my daughter Catherine, uh, along with my family, and honor uh, honor her memory. And so, for our family, we call this Catherine's Law, and mm-hmm. we we also believe that this is a law that would be in honor of all of the children of the many, the twenty three thousand some families in Quebec who are affected by perinatal loss every year in honor of um, their children. It is deeply personal for you, clearly, as much as you're willing and and comfortable discussing at at this stage. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your own experiences of perinatal loss? Well, I'm the, most people know me as a mom of three Mm -hmm. very active, healthy boys. And for that, I am very grateful, but I'm also the mother of a daughter, Catherine, who was stillborn just days before my scheduled C-section following a viral attack uh, that was rooted in a long-standing but undiagnosed uh, autoimmune disorder on my part. I'm so sorry. And so she was, you know, stillborn. And, you know, I know that um, for a lot of families, when they experience the loss of a child, you often blame yourself. And I think in my case, and for those women who experience the loss within our own bodies, um, it, it's very difficult, and so um, recognizing this day um, and providing support to families, I think, is very important. Those who have experienced what you have uh, and have never spoken about it or don't feel comfortable speaking about it might be surprised or in awe of how open you are able to be. How long did it take, or how did you come to that point where you could do that? Well, Catherine would be eight years old mm-hmm. this year. So it's been a process. I had, frankly, even till about five minutes up until I did my intervention in the National Assembly in our legislature, I hadn't planned to actually talk about my story. I was, of course, going to talk about Catherine and the loss of Catherine, but not how things actually 
happened and how we lost her. And so it's been a process. Um, but I think destigmatizing such a difficult loss and grief, I think, is important. That's the whole point. Um, and so I, you know, sort of almost spontaneously decided to add that piece. And I will say as an elected official, I'm finding that some of the most meaningful moments in the legislature are when we get through the partisan stuff and in a shared sort of a sense of our common humanity come together around unanimous motions. And those are some of the most rewarding moments. I had the Speaker of the House come up to me after my speech to say that 53 years ago, he lost his older brother and his Mm -hmm. mother to this day still grieves. So you just have no idea of unfortunately how common the loss is. And perinatal loss can be anything from a miscarriage up until six weeks after the birth. And you have experienced that that full range of pregnancy loss? I have. Sadly, I've had five miscarriages, including one up until 19 weeks of pregnancy. And then, of course, Catherine at uh, almost 37 weeks. And regardless of how the loss happens or when it happens, there's no judgment around who has it worse? It's just mm-hmm. a common, you know, we all experience it differently and it's important to be able to talk about it and also support healthcare workers. Cause I think for like, I remember at the time of losing Catherine, there were nurses in the maternity ward who were like, I did not sign up for this. And you could tell it was very difficult for them. So destigmatizing it. But I think this is the first step to so much more that we need to do to support families. It's just a process of, of, you know, working together and trying to destigmatize something that, as I say, is complicated. I would like to say like, Perinatal loss is not contagious. You're not going to get it by speaking to someone yeah. about it. Uh, people are afraid, and, and even with the best of intentions, can sometimes say something that may be hurtful, like it wasn't meant to be, or you can have oh. more. I always say <sighs> the best thing to say is just, I'm so sorry for your loss yes. if you don't know what to say. You've also spoken about the need in these situations for, for leave. Yes. So I was not able to access leave for, for my miscarriages. But in the case of Catherine, because she was born so close to her due date, um, I was already able to access Quebec and Canada maternity benefits. But for my husband, he had no access. And so I think benefits earlier on for miscarriages, for example, but also for fathers. You know, fathers, there's also a whole bunch of grieving and and impacts on the couple. It's pretty heavy duty. And so you do need some time at a minimum, I would think those five days. But I know there's another proposal out there for five weeks. Uh, both for mothers and fathers, uh, in addition to the the maternity benefits. So I think there's a lot more that we could be doing in terms of, um, you know, the specific Mm -hmm. like employment related and benefits as well. For our listeners outside of Quebec, um, across Canada and around the world, really, what would you want to say to them, you know, families who've experienced this kind of loss that don't have access to the acknowledgement and the supports? What would you want to say to them? Well, the first thing I would say is I am so deeply sorry for your loss. I know that this is not something from which one recovers ever. It's learning to live uh, with the grief and the loss. And sometimes it feels like the loss of hope itself because so many, so many hopes and expectations come with our, with our baby. So one, I would want to acknowledge that. And I would say, if you don't have, you know, the public or private support, um, you know, to hold your loved ones close, things will get better over time. And I would say, if you want to work on legislation, if you want to take it up a notch, please reach out to me through the National Assembly. um, And and maybe, you know, there's work that we can do together. Desiree, thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate the interest and the support. Take care. You too. Desiree McGraw is the MNA for Notre Dame de Grasse. We reached her today in Quebec City. It's been less than four years since a Beijing-imposed national security law transformed Hong Kong, clamping down on protests and sending dozens of dissidents to jail or into exile. Now the city seems set on further constraints. Yesterday, officials in Hong Kong announced public consultations on new national security laws. The proposed legislation will target espionage, state secrets, and foreign influence. According to Chief Executive John Lee, the city has a constitutional responsibility to enact such laws and cannot afford to wait. While we, society as a whole, uh, looks calm and looks 
very safe. We still have to watch out for potential sabotage, undercurrents that try to create troubles, particularly some of the independent Hong Kong ideas are still being embedded in some people's minds and some foreign agents may still be active in Hong Kong. I think everybody, you want stability, you want safety. That is what this new legislation wants to do, to create stability and safety for everybody. Kevin Yim is a senior fellow at the Georgetown University Center for Asian Law. He is also wanted under the Beijing-drafted security law. We reached him in Melbourne. Kevin John Lee also said the city welcomes all input and opinion during these weeks of public consultation. Will you be sending feedback? Um, I don't think so, because uh, in their eyes, I'm a wanted criminal. They're going to ignore me no matter what I say anyway. Do you think they want opinion and feedback from anyone, really? I don't think so, unless the opinion is one that says that they're not going far enough and that they should go even further, because you can imagine that anyone who tries to criticise these proposals as being overly draconian and and what have you, may themselves already be breaching existing national security law or laws against sedition and the like. So I find it very difficult to see who would still dare raise significant opposition to any of this. John Lee, as we heard there, says this is about creating stability and safety for everyone in Hong Kong. He's also pointed to other countries, including Australia and Canada, saying they have their own national security laws. So Hong Kong needs to design its own and says it has a constitutional obligation to do that. What's your response to that? Well, Hong Kong does have a constitutional obligation, but it's always been the position of many people in Hong Kong that such legislation should only be put in place once Hong Kong also fulfills China's promise to it to have democracy in the city. Uh, But now they're basically an authoritarian government and trying to input and put in place some very authoritarian style national security laws, which are in many ways very different from the ones that you see in Western countries in terms of scope, in terms of procedure, uh, in terms of who gets caught or not get caught by them. Tell our listeners a little bit about the scope. What will be targeted here? Uh, basically, it's it's a little bit of a, a everywhere, everything, all at once type of thing, right? Because they go from targeting people who are criticizing the government online, uh, social media, uh, because they've now extended the definition of what constitutes seditious intention. And they are also potentially targeting businesses because some of the definitions surrounding what constitutes uh, the divulging of state secrets, what constitutes espionage, uh, what constitutes external interference. All of those things are going to affect um, all, all sorts of spheres of business activity. You've written that, that, quote, international investors that trade in Hong Kong shares and currency should be concerned. Of course, because if one looks at how they frame external interference, they're talking in terms of anything that might be perceived as pressuring the Hong Kong government into doing or not doing something. And if you look at investors putting in sort of heavy short positions on, say, the Hong Kong currency or the Hong Kong share market, uh, that can be construed as putting pressure on the Hong Kong government, say, to break the Hong Kong dollar, US dollar peg, or to make some changes to corporate governance policies, or to change their macroeconomic settings. All of that can be construed as external interference under the new legislation. But would they want the economy to take a hit? Would they want to encourage investment? No? 
Well, you would have thought so, but the thing is, you see similar laws like this in China, and we have seen over the years that, uh, especially in the sphere of the stock market, China has been very happy for people to buy up stocks on their markets and make it go up. But when people try and sell and make it go down, they impose all sorts of restrictions on it and and try and intimidate people and and even in some cases uh, try and prosecute people for for doing so uh, on national security type grounds. John Lee has said security and stability uh, are good for business. What do you see beyond the business aspect of things? As, as the impact of this well, national security law? Well, first of all, I, I, I do not agree that what they're doing is bringing in stability. Mm-hmm. What they're doing instead is that they're killing the entrepreneurialism, they're killing the, uh, the, the dynamism of Hong Kong, which makes it a strong financial center. But beyond that, there's obviously a lot of problems with the new legislation when it comes to uh, how it affects local Hong Kong people's human rights. There, a lot of that has already been affected by the existing national security law, but it's going to be worse now that they're going to try and expand the definition of what constitutes uh, making people have hatred or contempt for the Hong Kong government, meaning that satire is going to be dead, right, for example. You mentioned that you are a wanted man in their eyes. You are an Australian citizen. You were in Australia when you learned about this warrant, the $1 million Hong Kong bounty. That's about 170000 Canadian dollars for our listeners in Canada. If this goes through, this new law becomes a reality, are you expecting that you may face further charges? Well, who knows, right? But it's hard to speculate at this stage. As you've seen the changes, just from a, for you personally, you know, looking at the Hong Kong of today compared to the city that you knew, what has it been like to see that transformation? It's been quick and it's been devastating. I still hear from either people who still live in Hong Kong or people who have visited Hong Kong mm-hmm. how the atmosphere now is very stultified. That's not the Hong Kong we knew. Kevin, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Kevin Yim is a senior fellow at the Georgetown University Center for Asian Law. He spent 17 years practicing financial law in Hong Kong. We reached him in Melbourne. It's an understatement to say that Wayne Gretzky was a rare talent on the ice, which is why mint condition hockey cards from his rookie year are also rare and extremely valuable. After all, they're from this era. This is Wayne Gretzky in Edmonton, where the excitement is terrific. Our building's already sold out for the season. Believe me, it's great to be in Edmonton and in the National Hockey League. That was a teenage Wayne Gretzky speaking in an NHL Heritage video. Recently, a family in Saskatchewan discovered they had an unopened case of cards from the 1979-1980 season, which contains well over 700 cards. And there are likely several Wayne Gretzky rookie cards in the bunch. How many? Nobody knows because they haven't been opened yet. Jason Simons works for Heritage Auctions, which is selling the OPG brand cards for the family. We reached him in New York. Jason, superlatives are a given when we're talking to to an auction house about a great find. But but as a hockey fan or for a hockey fan, how would you describe this particular find? <laughs> yeah, this is like uh, the Rangers winning the Stanley Cup. It's a once-in-a-generation thing. <laughs> or the Leafs, says my producer just chimed in in my ear. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so when, when the family, who's asked to, to remain anonymous, uh, as you said before, they reached out and said, this is what we have, what did you say? I think my exact words were, oh my God. Um, I had never seen one. I don't think anyone in this industry has ever seen one of these cases before. And so when they said that we had a 1979 OPG hockey case, I had said, oh my God. And then my second request was, could you send a photo? How did they find them in their home? So... 
the father of this uh, of this individual was an avid collector. He collected cards back in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, and he essentially filled a room with cards. He had um, hundreds, if not thousands, of boxes of, of cards sitting around in, in this room, and the son has said, hey, Dad, it's time to clean out this room and see what's inside, and Sure enough, after layer and layer and layer, they, they found this. And these are all unopened boxes. Exactly. So this is like one of those boxes that you would see on a grocery store shelf. You know, it has 48 packs inside. Um, but this is a case. This is what would have been delivered on a pallet to those grocery stores. So this has 16 unopened boxes inside. Once you receive that picture and you decided that you're all in, you want you want to help them auction these off. Can you just tell our listeners the, the lengths that everybody uh-huh. went to to transport these yeah. safely? So um, when it comes to something that's valuable, Heritage Auctions has, has sold $1.8 billion last year worth of material. And so um, we're, we're very accustomed to dealing with, with items of this value. So what we did, actually, we flew out a guard, one of our guards that's on staff, to go and pick up this case and bring it to an armed shipment company. And that armed shipment company actually drove it down from Canada to Dallas, Texas, where we're located. Um, and then later, I had bought a ticket to fly up to Regina in the dead of winter to go and see what else is in the house. What did you make of of how pristine they were when you saw them? It was like a, a stroke of luck. It, it was it was truly something that no one would have ever imagined. You know, we I've opened up some cases before, not from seventy nine OPG hockey, and but these boxes are are pristine. Um, you know, the the boxes themselves are white, and so you can tell the difference between a box that had been opened back in 1979 and a box that was opened in 2024 and and the difference is staggering it's like a it's like a a perfect bleach white but you can't be sure can you that that wayne gretzky rookie cards are in there so it would be pretty astronomical the odds would be astronomical if there was one that if there wasn't one inside um so there are 396 cards in the set, and if you're doing the math, there's 48 packs. Each pack has 14 cards. You know, if the odds are, if the distribution is correct, you should have actually 25 to 30 Wayne Gretzky rookie cards in there. They they printed out thousands of them, countless of them. There are probably people who are listening to this right now who have a Wayne Gretzky rookie card sitting somewhere in their in their collection. But what makes it special is that no one has ever seen an unopened, pristine box before. Um, we, we've sold the, the packs and we've sold boxes before, um, but this, this case is, is something special, something much different. So the person who buys it is the goal that they would keep them just like that in the boxes, unopened? You know, that's the uh, $2 million question. <laughs> um, I would imagine whoever buys this will keep it sealed um, for, for a very long time. So you mentioned $2 million. Is that ultimately what you think they'll go for? I think it goes for more. Um, so the last time we sold a box at Heritage Auctions, we sold a single box for $210,000. Um, that's USD. So if you're doing the math in your head, that comes out to around $3.2 million for 16 boxes. I would imagine this is going to end somewhere in that two point five to $3 million range. You know, mm-hmm. we, we do auctions all the time. People are willing to spend a lot of money on things that, that our pe- other people may not want to. But this is a lot of money mm-hmm. for boxes, as you say, will likely not be opened. It's not like they're going to frame something and put it up on the wall. How do you square that in your mind? You know, it's it's like anything, um, like art, like, like uh, real estate. It's an investment. Um, people look at this and say, this is a one-of-a-kind item. It's Wayne Gretzky's rookie year. This is the holy grail of hockey cards, you know. Um, I wasn't joking when I said this is a once-in-a-generation find. It, it, it truly is. Um, we, I don't believe we're ever going to come across another one of these cases. How does the family feel, specifically the man who bought these all, you know, 40 years ago? How is he feeling about letting them go? You know, I think he's very happy with his $150 investment back in 1979. And actually, frankly, this was a, just a case that he didn't get around to opening yet. Um, he had bought this with the intention of opening it in 1979. He was he was out there collecting cards, trying to build 
complete sets of 1979 OPG hockey. And so he bought this, and he was going to open it. But he just, frankly, never got around to it. Well, this is this is a fun story, but I worry that it's a bad example for people who have hoarding tendencies. They're going to want to keep those boxes. <laughs> yeah, don't don't reach out to me with your boxes. I uh, <laughs> uh, it's going to be unless it's a '79 OPG hockey case, which I, I don't think is, it will be. But um, inevitably, uh, I get a lot of calls after these um, with with their boxes that they find in their attic. Jason, thanks for your time. Thank you so much. Jason Simons is with Heritage Auctions Sports Department. He's in New York. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.